Our sermon text for this morning comes from Hebrews chapter 4, and we'll read verses 1 through 10. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear, lest any of you seem to have come short of it. For indeed, the gospel was preached to us as well as to them, but the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. For we who have believed do enter that rest, as he has said, so I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this place, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains that some must enter it, and those to whom it was first preached did not enter because of disobedience, again he designates a certain day, saying in David, Today, after such a long time as it has been said, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, then he would not have afterwards spoken of another day. There remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God. For he who has entered his rest has himself ceased from his works as God did from his. I'll call the kid to the front. The verses that we just read teach us many important things, but we're just going to look at a, at a few. The first thing, which I believe is super important, is that these verses teach us how to read the stories in the Old Testament. The Old Testament is the first part of the Bible. And the stories in the Old Testament were all written before Jesus came. The other part of the Bible, the New Testament, was written after Jesus came. In our verses, God uses the stories of the Old Testament in order to explain the meaning of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. That is very important to understand. What Israel was in the Old Testament, Christians are now. If we don't understand this, then we won't understand the stories in the Old Testament. I'm sure you've noticed or you've seen uh, signs by the side of the road. Those signs tell drivers how far it is to certain places. They tell drivers about places people might be interested in going, like parks or playgrounds or museums or famous places. The most important thing about the Old Testament is that everything in it, every story, every hero of the story, every part of the life of God's people, everything was like a road sign pointing ahead to Jesus. If we don't understand that, then when we read the books of the Bible that tell us about how Israel set up their tents, or how they were to hunt and cook, or how they were to march. You might find these stories boring, and you might wonder why God included them in his Bible. Many people actually feel this way. They're embarrassed to say it, of course, but they find parts of the Bible boring. They, they understand it must be important, otherwise God wouldn't have included it in the Bible. But they quietly skip those parts of the Bible when they read, and some people skip large parts of the Bible. It's sad, very sad, but it's true. In our verses this morning, Paul is still talking about the people of Israel that walked around in the wilderness for 40 years. Only now, he's talking about their children, and these children were now grown-ups. And Joshua, Moses' helper, was their leader because Moses had just died. There are two important things that I need to explain to you. First, the name Jesus, in its original language, is was pronounced Joshua. 
If you lived in Bible times, you would have heard people say Joshua when they were talking about Jesus. Why is that important, you ask? Well, it's important because the man who gave Israel the promised land was named Jesus. But our verses tell us that this Jesus, the one we call Joshua, didn't give the people rest. You know why? Because true rest is not rest from walking, rest from work, rest from war, or rest from trouble. True rest is rest from sin. And Joshua, because he was a man, because he was a sinner, he couldn't give that rest. The one who gives us true rest is Jesus. And the second important thing is something I've already told you over the past couple of Sundays. The promised land was a picture of heaven. It was like a road sign. Think about that. Someone named Joshua leads God's people into the promised land. That's a big picture of the message of the gospel. Someone also named Joshua, that we pronounce Jesus, leads God's people to heaven. And so the stories of the Old Testament are important for Christians because they are the history of God's church. The stories of the Old Testament are our stories. They're our history. Because all those things in the Old Testament were like road signs pointing ahead to Jesus. Once Jesus came, the signs weren't needed anymore. The stories about them are needed, but the signs themselves aren't. That's why we don't kill and burn lambs or cows in an altar at church. That's why we don't travel to one special building to worship God. There are churches all over the world now. In the Old Testament, there was just one special place called the temple where people worshiped God and where sacrifices were made. And it's also why we now worship on Sunday. In the Old Testament, God's people worshiped on Saturday. Jesus changed that day of worship to Sunday because he wanted us to understand that he really did everything that those old road signs pointed towards. If we still worshiped on Saturday, it'd be like saying that Jesus hadn't finished the job. The people that died in the wilderness because they didn't believe God, because they didn't believe God could save them, this is important for you because you are children and grandchildren of Christians. Some here are great-grandchildren and great-great-grandchildren of Christians. The people who died in the wilderness... They were the children of believers too. Their ancestors were Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but they died and did not go to heaven because they didn't believe God could save them. I want you to pay close attention to the rest of the sermon. We'll pray and then you can return to your seat. O Heavenly Father, thy word is perfect, restoring the soul making wise the simple and enlightening the eyes of the blind, the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes. We, however, are by nature blind and incapable of doing anything good, and thou wilt relieve only those who have a broken and contrite heart and who revere thy word. We entreat thee that thou wouldst illumine our darkened minds with thy Holy Spirit and give us a humble heart, free from all haughtiness and carnal wisdom, in order that we, hearing thy word, may rightly understand it and regulate our lives accordingly. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. At the beginning of this series on Hebrews, I said that Hebrews is often considered a commentary on Leviticus. You may be wondering about that assessment about this, at this point, because all we have seemed to talk about is Exodus. We'll get to Leviticus, believe me. 
But there is something important to notice here. Paul uses the book of Exodus in order to teach these new Christians about their history. Did you know that in the the early days of the Christian church, and I mean the first several centuries, Exodus was the first book of the Bible that was taught to new converts. It was a way to get them up to speed on church history and their place in it. So Exodus is not an account of the history of some foreign nation with which we have a passing interest. If we were to study the history of Nepal, for instance, we might find it fascinating. But because we're Americans, the history of Nepal doesn't really affect us. But this should not be our attitude towards biblical history. The generations of the heavens and the earth should be read as the history of our heaven and earth. The genealogies of Adam and his sons are the history of our ancestors, something that should concern us intensely. And it's also true of Israel's exodus from Egypt and the covenant made with the Lord. The ultimate issue is our deliverance from the house of bondage and our covenant with the Lord. Hebrews is addressed to Christians, therefore to us. And so the histories of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the Exodus, Joshua, the Judges, the Kings, that is our history. As I noted before, unless there is a direct continuity between Old Testament Israel and the New Testament church, there is no legitimate way to take these narratives from the Old Testament and then apply them practically to New Testament Christian concerns. Now to our outline. The gospel promise of faith, number one, is by faith, uh, the gospel promise of rest is by faith in Christ, number one. Number two, signified by the change of the Sabbath. And number three, fulfilled in Christ. The gospel promise of rest is by faith in Christ. That's our first point. I want to explain the title of the sermon this morning, Moses, my servant is dead. Those words come from Joshua chapter 1 and verse 2. And I chose these words mainly to sort of plant a concept into our minds, which I believe is depicts something significant about the relationship between the law and the gospel. I've said this before, but Moses symbolizes the law. His mere name does. We see this quite often in the New Testament where Jesus or the apostles just say the name Moses as sort of shorthand for the law. Now in Reformed theology, there is what is known as the three uses of the law. Our confessional Lutheran friends hold to this truth as well. Simply put, the three uses of the law are, number one, the pedagogic use. In short, the law is a mirror in which we see our sinfulness. And God intends by this that we despair of salvation in ourselves and cast ourselves upon Christ for righteousness and life. The second use of the law is the civil use. That's what most of us think of when we think of laws. It it serves to restrain sin by the threat of punishment. It doesn't remove sin from the heart or even restrain sinful desires. It just makes you think twice about whether or not the punishment is worth it. And the third use is what is called the didactic or the teaching use. This means that God's law teaches us how to live to please Him. It isn't a means of earning anything from God, of course. Our catechism, Heidelberg Catechism, calls it the fruit of thankfulness. We strive to live holy lives, not to earn anything, but as the natural fruit of gratitude. 
Now, people tend to get hung up on that third use of the law. They falsely assume that since God commanded it, man must be able to do it. And if man can do it, then that must be the way of justification before God. This is a grave error, and I can show you a very simple reason why. The law not only came with a host of rules, mostly practical applications of the Ten Commandments, but it also came with a host of sacrifices for sin. The very existence of these sacrifices, ordained by God no less, that has to tell you something. It means that salvation under the Old Testament was by grace, just like it is in the New Testament. In both eras, God provided sacrifice for the sins of His people. The Old Testament was merely anticipating what would come in the New. So, when we look at our text, hopefully you can see the logic of that first point. The gospel promise of rest comes through faith in Christ. We read in our text, The gospel was preached to us as well as to them, but the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. In other words, faith in Christ was the way of salvation in the Old Testament too. Saints then looked forward to the coming Christ. Saints now look back upon his finished work. And we know that his work is finished because there are no more temple sacrifices. Christ made sure of that when he rent the temple veil in two. And the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple guaranteed that there can be no more temple sacrifices. A a rebuilt temple with animal sacrifices would be a greater sin against Christ than crucifying Him because it would be the ultimate rejection against God's plan of salvation. Zionists, be careful what you ask for. You just might get it. Now our text tells us that the only saving response to the gospel is faith. That generation that Moses led out of Egypt, they heard the gospel too. Paul literally says that. The gospel was preached to them. They perished after hearing the gospel because they refused to believe that God was capable of doing what He had promised. Now I take verse 2 to mean that they were not united by faith with those who heeded the gospel. There were those who heard the gospel and believed it. Such were Joshua and Caleb and many of the younger generation. Those who did not believe the gospel were not united to them by faith. Their union, so to speak, with the church was superficial. Mere genetic association. They were biological offspring of Abraham, but not the children of Abraham according to the promise. The Pharisees said to Jesus, we're Abraham's children. Jesus said, no, you're of your father the devil. The gospel is the good news that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He didn't come to induce us to save ourselves or to enable us to save ourselves. He came to do it himself. And that truth is clearly displayed in Exodus. All of Israel would have perished in the wilderness apart from God's guiding presence. The only reason they came to the promised land is because God is faithful to his covenant. Deuteronomy 6 Verses 4 through 7 clearly declare this. God says to the younger generation whose parents died in the wilderness for not believing God, Do not think in your heart, saying, Because of my righteousness, the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. Understand that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stiff necked people. Remember, 
Do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. From the day that you departed from the land of Egypt until you came to this place, you have been rebellious against the Lord. You see, God clearly declares that salvation is not by our own righteousness because there is none righteous. No, not one. Canaan was a picture of heaven. And the people of God enter heaven because of his faithfulness to his own covenant. It is not a reward for a good life. It's not payment for hard work. It is pure grace from start to finish. And God goes out of his way to disabuse us of the notion that we can merit his favor. He says over and over, the Lord is not doing anything good for you because you deserve it. And then he presses harder. Remember, in other words, I haven't forgotten. Remember, do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. You see, God knows us better than we know ourselves. The second things seem to be going in our favor, we automatically assume that it must be because of us. I must have done something right. And God actually warns us of this in Deuteronomy 8. He says, beware that you do not forget the Lord your God, lest when you have eaten and are full, and you have built beautiful houses and dwell in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply, you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage, who led you through that great and terrible wilderness. And then you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gained me this wealth. That generation that perished in the wilderness behaved as if God owed them. They complained about water, about food, about shelter, about everything, as if God were obligated to them and he was failing to meet his obligations. And to this day, you can hear the same thing when people say things like, why did God let this happen to me? The unspoken assumption is that God is obligated to shield me from anything which happens to displease me. All the time we use language like, I deserve this. I deserve that, or or worse yet, I deserve better. None of us deserve anything but eternal hellfire. We daily trample God's law underfoot in thought, word, and deed, and then want to be surprised that he should be displeased by this. And the worst thing is that on top of trampling his law underfoot on a daily basis, many people have the nerve to think that he's supposed to be wowed by our good deeds. And this is the very embodiment of the Exodus generation's sin. We're going to flout God's word every chance we get and still demand our right to the promised land. We deserve better than this stinking manna and this water from this rock, which is Christ. If we were only allowed to make our own way, we'd be better off. We can save ourselves. Now I want to move on to the second point. The gospel promise of rest is signified by the change of the Sabbath. Now pay close attention to the wording of verses 8 through 9. For if Joshua had given them rest, then he would not have afterwards have spoken of another day. There remains therefore a rest for the people of God. Now the rest spoken of has clear reference to the Sabbath. There, well, first of all, it's already mentioned earlier in the text, but two reasons primarily is that one, the word rest in Scripture generally is an allusion to the Sabbath. And number two, the word translated rest here in verse 9 is the Greek word sabbatismos. Even without knowing Greek, you can hear the root word sabbath. When we enter God's rest, we cease from our works like God did from his work. 
God's work was that of creation. So when a sinner works for his own salvation, it's akin to him trying to create his own reality in which he is the Savior. And that's why God hates all works or salvation by works schemes because they usurp His divine prerogative. God ceasing from His work is a reference to Genesis 2.2. He rested on the seventh day from all His work which He had done. Now we've repeatedly noted that this epistle was addressed to Hebrew Christians who were living in that era of transition between the Old and the New Testament forms of worship. Actually, they were living completely within the New. But there was a temptation to hold on to the old because, number one, they were being persecuted by the Jews who had rejected Jesus as the promised Messiah. And number two, their own attachment to the old was strong enough to give this persecution teeth. So when Paul starts speaking of the day of rest, he's saying a lot more than appears initially on the surface. Paul is saying two very important things here. First... The day of rest still holds for Christians. The work of Christ in fulfilling the various sacrifices and ceremonies of the law, while it did render those sacrifices and ceremonies obsolete, it did not render the Sabbath ordinance obsolete. But secondly, it did change the day in which it is observed. Our passage says, Joshua did not give the people rest. God spoke of another day. In other words, there is a new day of rest. And then Paul says, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. You see, the change of the Sabbath from the old seventh-day Sabbath to the new first day of the week, Lord's Day, means that the whole Old Testament administration has been changed. In chapter 7, Paul's going to make this same argument again, but this time by way of the change of the priesthood. He's going to say that since Christ is not a priest after the order of Aaron... Therefore, the whole superstructure of Aaronic worship, that is the Old Testament worship, has been replaced. And then in chapter 8, he's going to show how the Old Testament predicted this transition. Jeremiah 31 speaks in plain terms of the New Testament. And Paul says that by speaking of a New Testament, God has made the first obsolete. Paul then applies that truth in these words. Now, what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. The cornerstone features of a religion are its regulations for worship and sacrifice and the priesthood which administers this worship and sacrifice on the appointed days. In Christ, we have a new priesthood. Therefore, a new application of the law of God and a new day of rest. Jesus redefined the Sabbath and changed its day of observance. This was done to fully ensure the transition from the old to the new. Nothing more establishes the obsolescence of the old than that we now worship on a different day. It is a bad sign when people have no reverence for the Lord's Day. I'm younger than many of you. But I'm old enough to remember a time when no stores were open on Sunday. There might have been an odd gas station open, but people even frowned on that. Today, you'd be hard-pressed to find a business closed on Sunday. You'd be harder-pressed to find one closed on Sunday because it is the Lord's Day. Most businesses that are closed on Sunday do so because it's established convention. It isn't out of love for the fourth commandment. 
Incidentally, I find it deeply troubling that there is a growing trend in American evangelical churches to have Saturday evening services. Now, frankly, I'd love to have more church services. But these Saturday evening services are not preludes to the Lord's Day. They're replacements for it. They may still have a Sunday morning service, but Saturday night is intentionally provided for those who can't make it on Sunday. And the reason they can't make it on Sunday is because they're pagans whose false gods demand worship on Sunday. It's not that these churches are outright Judaizing. No, they're compromising with heathens that, that desecrate the Lord's Day. 2 Kings 17 and verse 33 tells of pagans who were transplanted into Judah after the exile. And in order to placate the God of the land, we read that they feared the Lord, yet served their own gods according to the rituals of the nations from among whom they were carried away. This is what the Saturday, Saturday evening services are when they're substitutes for Sunday morning. The heathen are going to worship their own gods, their gods of sports and recreation on their holy day of Sunday. But in order to placate their consciences and shut God up, they'll still, they'll still serve the Lord, only they'll do it in their own way on their own day. They'll worship God as long as worshiping Him doesn't interfere with the worship of their other gods. So it's not Judaizing in substance, but it is Judaizing in principle. It's substituting a day of their own making for the day God ordained. Had the original recipients of Hebrews compromised with the synagogue by observing Seventh-day Sabbath instead of the first day, they would have been turning their backs on Christ and all that He has provided in the New Testament. Worshiping God in Christ on the Lord's Day is the cornerstone of Christian worship because in Christ, all the prophecies, all the types and shadows of the Old Testament are fulfilled. And that leads us to our third point. The gospel promise of rest is fulfilled in Christ. I'm going to give you a crash course on the typology of the Old Testament. The New Testament teaches that Christ is the fulfillment of the Old Testament figures and institutions. For instance, Christ is the second Adam, the true Adam. What Adam is to all mankind, Christ is to the elect. Adam stood for all mankind in his transgression and fall. Christ stands for the elect in his righteous obedience and death. Christ is the true Israel. Israel was called God's chosen. That theme runs throughout Exodus and Deuteronomy. But in Isaiah 49, God explicitly declares that Christ is His chosen one, and He calls Him by the name of Israel. Isaiah 49.3 reads, You are my servant, O Israel, in whom I will be glorified. And then in verse 6, God says, I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. There's no mistaking that this is speaking of Christ. And so the elect in the Old Testament Israel were chosen by God because they were chosen in Christ. The true chosen one, the true elect, the true Israel. The name Israel means God prevails. And Jacob got the name Israel after he had wrestled all night with God. As the morning dawned, the, the man with whom he wrestled touched his hip and dislocated it. And the man says, let me go for the day dawns. And he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And so the man said to him, what is your name? And Jacob said, uh, Jacob. And he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. And then we read that Jacob called the name of this place 
Peniel, for I have seen, he says, I have seen God face to face, and my life is preserved. The man with whom Jacob wrestled was Christ. It was Christ manifesting himself prior to his incarnation. And it's also clear that Christ is who prevailed. I mean, he merely touched Jacob's hip and it was dislocated. And Jacob walked with a limp for the rest of his life. Jacob understood that he had seen God face to face. He called the place Peniel, which means the face of God. But God in his grace preserved Jacob's life. One of the most commonly assumed truths in the Old Testament is that one cannot see God's face and live. The glory of the New Testament is that God has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Jacob turned Israel was only a foreshadowing of Christ who is the true Israel. Christ is the true temple. It began with the tabernacle, that tent that Israel had in the wilderness. God swore to be their God and to dwell among them. And so while all Israel lived in tents, God dwelt in a tent with them. When Israel was established in Canaan, God ordained the building of the temple, a permanent structure. They weren't moving, neither was He. And Jesus, in John chapter 2, calls Himself the temple. He says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And John tells us that he was speaking of the temple of his body. Revelation 21 and verse 22 says, But I saw no temple in it, that is the new Jerusalem, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The fulfillment of the Old Testament, and therefore its obsolescence, can also be seen in the following. Jesus replaced circumcision with baptism. Jesus replaced the Passover with the Lord's Supper. All of the sacrifices of the Old Testament were fulfilled by Christ. That's why there is no need for further sacrifices. Christ offered Himself once for all. And that's why in the New Jerusalem, that is the New Testament church, there's no need of a temple wherein to offer sacrifices. Christ, the Lamb, is the temple and He has already been offered. And the final stamp on Christ's fulfilled work was the change of the Sabbath from the seventh day to the first. That's the point kind of of our sermon title, Moses, my servant is dead. Moses, the representative of the law, could not give God's people rest. Only Jesus can do that. Verse 8 of our text tells us that if Joshua had given the people rest, then God wouldn't have spoken of another day. The name Jesus, we told this to the kids earlier, the name Jesus is the, the, the English form of the Greek rendering of the Hebrew name Joshua. That's a mouthful. The law must give place to the gospel to give God's people rest. And that's signified by the fact that it was not Moses, but Joshua, the lesser Jesus, who led Israel into Canaan. But only the greater Joshua, that is Jesus Christ, can give us rest from our works. It's not a flaw in Joshua that he couldn't give rest. He was only a promissory note. He was like a road sign pointing ahead to Jesus. God never intended that Joshua be the Savior of His people. That glory is reserved for Jesus. The Old Testament goes to great lengths to show us that the heroes of the Bible, Abraham, Jacob, Samson, David, etc., were sinners. The success of God's kingdom is in Christ's hands. 
God doesn't stake the success of His kingdom on the work of sinners. And that's all there is. All of God's servants are sinners. And the failures and the sinfulness of the great heroes of the Old Testament, those are signs pointing us away from them and to Christ. I mean, who wants Samson for a, for a savior? He can't even save himself from narcissism and lust. Who wants Jehoshaphat as king? He makes alliances with God's enemies. No, the Old Testament heroes let us down because that's what sinners do. The church is not to put their faith in Moses or in Joshua, but in Jesus. Christ is all in all. He is the true Joshua that leads his people into the promised land of heaven by the strength of his own saving work. Ours is not the struggle to eke out our own measly salvation by our own polluted good works. Ours is to fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord which he will work for you today. We do not lead ourselves into the promised land. That's the false gospel of Arminianism and Romanism. The great Joshua, our Lord Jesus Christ, it is He that leads His people into the promised land. Let us pray.